What do you guys think the Dennis Villeneuve death panel would be like? Yeah, somehow, uh, like, you know, less... Uh, a little sparser. Yeah, yeah f- fewer, fewer deep monologues, no Balisette playing. Um, <laughs> Timothy Chalamet as Phil. Yes. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson gets in trouble for playing a blind woman. <laughs> Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to the second weekly episode just for patrons, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends. You can post about your favorite episodes or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So later on in the episode, we will check in on what is sort of an update from Tuesday's patron episode, which was a fantastic hang. Abby came, Abby Cardis came to sub in for Phil and the we other, talked. you got the other Yinzer. Yes. Yeah, we exactly. had a, you know, there's gotta be a one-to-one replacement of Yinzers <laughs> on this show. It's yeah. like, you know, like when you're doing That's some the sort golden of ratio for, <laughs> for a death panel. Yeah. Yeah, the recipe exactly. just doesn't work without it. Exactly. It's like if you leave baking soda or flour out of the cake, right. you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, you got to have that Yinzer spice in there. So uh, we had Abby back on Tuesday um, to talk about the David Leonhard piece uh, in the New York Times that claimed that Emily Oster had been vindicated when it comes to COVID and kids. So taking into consideration the sort of imminent emergency authorization that I think we are expecting to come down from um, for the vaccine for for the vaccine for under 12, which now has people saying, you know, it's time to stop mandating masks in children. So we'll check in on that. (sighs) But uh, but first, I wanted to talk about the increasingly limited ambitions of Biden's build back better proposal, which is only continued to get more narrow and austere by the day, I feel like, at this point. And which, fittingly, I think uh, the new kind of line emerging for which is that specifically the healthcare provision part of it is, quote-unquote, holding up right. the spending bill. Yeah, that this is ultimately, I think, the, the language has really shifted in the past week to 10 days. Last week, it was so much about you know, the interpersonal dynamics between two senators and the rest of everybody else holding it up this week. It's what trade off are we going to make with healthcare? And, and like the framing is basically like we're going to have to do either the Medicare uh, benefits expansion or we're going to do Medicaid. Right. But like it's all come down to apparently now the trade off of like, what are we going to cut from healthcare is now what's delaying the passage. This is so I want to like draw back the, the wind back the reel, like maybe <laughs> to the spring because like the, the main line about Biden, I feel like from this sort of uh, Washington intelligentsia anyway, it's just that like, you know, He's got big plans, but unlike a lot of previous presidents, you know, uh, you know, Bush, Obama, Trump, obviously, none of them had really been in Washington or for Obama, not very long uh, before like governing as president, but like Biden, 
He's the season insider. He's gonna. <laughs> he's the legislator. He's gonna get it the done. Negotiator. <laughs> yeah, Elaine K. Mark. I remember like reading this like piece by her. It's like, like others before him, Biden has big plans, but <laughs> he has the depth and breadth of experience to make them reality. Like and a red like, wine tote with like Biden and the deal maker underneath. <laughs> right. Or something. And and you know it's so okay the. The question is, like, you have these plans, you've made a bunch of, like, fairly specific commitments to a variety of things, child tax credit, you know, higher education, like, you know, free college, uh, you know, pre-K, all these things, family Mm -hmm. leave, you know. And then the question is, like, what, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is do you get them done at the moment where you actually have a political opportunity being like the first, you know, half of your uh, term or, you know, certainly like the first year uh, when you have like the most goodwill. And, you know, the thing that's sort of been revealed over the last whatever few weeks is that you've got, you know, obviously these like very obvious uh, barriers to that in the Senate. And so like the one thing you might expect, I don't know that like in this situation where like bargaining for the main things that you want is like hard, you might expect like he would go hard on the people who uh, are holding <laughs> things up. But I was thinking like people like, oh, well, he's like going to Scranton. He's like taking the message to the people. But like watch the Scranton speech. And it's like it's mainly talking about like being like growing up in Scranton. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like mostly like it's standard. Like I, I don't understand. Like there's no, there's not a lot of like, yes, here are the things are in the bill. Here are the things that are holding it up. And like, let's get it done. It's not even that sort of like going public. It's pretty warmed over. Just like, you know, my uncle and it's like, it, it's a little weird. Honestly, it's like he, it's like they, they kind of set him loose on like, go ahead and make like a personal kind of like a personal commitment speech or something, or like a personal life journey speech. That does. I don't know. It just seems like more of like, oh, they let him kind of give either a vanity speech or like something to like maybe goose his popularity numbers or something more so than actually try and like use a quote unquote bully pulpit or whatever, Mm -hmm. like leverage anything towards it. No, no. And but like and this is the thing is that when you think about like the things like the child tax credit, right, Mm -hmm, which, mm -hmm. okay, um, just even by like comparative standards, like Canada's child tax credit when they passed it a few years ago like twice as large as the u.s one it's just like does you, it last lose, longer than a year too yeah it's like you lose sense of the scale right but then there's the question of like okay is it when's it gonna sunset and then the question of uh you know joe manchin is like well there have to be work requirements in it which is just the most absurd like the idea that like it's really gonna like reduce the like parental labor supply is like fucking absurd but anyway like and and biden like he'll respond like no i don't think there should be work requirements in the bill, but he's not like, like that's the attack. Like you have to make, if you're like going public on something and you want it to happen and you can't get what you want behind closed doors, like, and you're not saying like, this is the thing that this is what's like blocking it. We can't like, we can't do this halfway is, you know, I mean, what I I just like getting, getting it done really, I guess depends on the, uh, this like notion that like Washingtonian, type like reporters have it's just like well anything getting done is i guess something that we can all like clap like a fucking seal for (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah no exactly i mean that's that kind of seems almost like the goal now is just to kind of go ahead and get something anything done even if it doesn't really matter if there's a weird benefits cliff or if it's like a bunch of really shitty programs that 
are pale imitations of what the original idea was. I mean, we haven't even talked about the kind of, you know, not to be too Congress watchy or whatever, but it is, you know, tragically funny or something that they just decided this week to like take the L or at least the Biden administration like decided to just kind of take the L and decide like, okay, now we're going to just actively be pushing for a 1.7 or like even 1.5 by some report uh, trillion dollar spending bill. Not that that's like, again, you know, as we talk about all the time, not that the figure is important, but it's like what that has resulted in is just this endless parade of like, like my favorite thing to see in the last couple of days is this endless parade of fucking graphs from uh, from uh, journalists. I think mostly because they're like uh, I think media organizations are feeling the the push of like that line that had been existing for a little bit. They don't know totally how to respond to it, but there's the line for a little bit that was like the media isn't telling the the people like what what oh, is right. actually in these bills. And so what they're <laughs> actually how they're trying to square this is by like literally making these graphs that are like here's a bunch of like little construction blocks that all have like oh my here's God, paid yes. leave, here's Medicare expansion, here's whatever in it. And uh so here are all those blocks. You see how big that is. Now here's a big square with two trillion in it. Can you help Democrats figure out? Like, can you help it's Democrats like the, solve the oh, Sunday the, oh, puzzle? It's, a, it's the math problem. The, I, right. That tweet from New York Times fave Margot Margo Sanger Katz that was like, this is the math problem that Democrats are trying to solve. Well, yeah, she's off. like, first oh of God. all, one of my least favorite voices on like <laughs> the healthcare pay for. But second of all, like absolutely unqualified to teach any like thing to a child. Right. Because apps, <laughs> like she, what, what they're showing is they, they've got these like interactive inaccessible by the way inter- interactive graphics right and like they think that they're communicating to people what's in the package by showing them right like here are all these components that you can interact with and you can itemize yourself right but all this graphic does is literally reinforce the myth that the federal government spends money like a household right and that it every single like any line item of spending that congress has to pass is like framed in this, um, you know, personal budgetary framework, right? And then it's like encouraging people to do a sort of DIY and like further cement that idea in their minds. Like the, these people designing these things, thinking that they're communicating like what's inside the package are only just communicating like a false structure of how the package is put together. Yeah, it's here, like the most how absurd you do fantasy bullshit. football for government or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. It would be like if you're like, okay, like, you know, it's really difficult to decide who gets this organ from this, you know, patient that's now giving up organ donations. Why don't we play the game operation to decide and think through how we're going to allocate, you know, the funny bone to all the people that need it. You know what I mean? It's like that dumb. But the the other thing is like, as if the math problem, as if the math problem isn't the question of like, how do you actually stand up one of these programs Right. 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 So like it, it even take something like, you know, childcare where the idea is that like states are going to stand up new childcare programs and that uh, the way that that's going to work is families have to like satisfy not only to like to be qualified, like an activity test, an asset test <laughs> and an income test. <laughs> and then there are these like cliff thresholds. Like if you are $1 over the threshold, you have to pay like the full freight of, of childcare. So like rather than fuck? thinking about the math problem is like 
how do we solve this problem? Which, by the way, if anyone was like paying attention to like why people might not be fucking like going back to work, like like childcare is a huge part of that. But like, as, as if anyone were paying attention to that, you know, you might think about like the context of the problem and like how do we get to something that actually is a childcare program rather than a brochure <laughs> advertising a childcare program, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, like that, you know, that is that is like. It's not a math problem. It's a question of like, how committed are you to the goal? It's a problem of political um, commitment. But okay, if you want to call it math, it's like, do indeed, Margot Sanger Katz, do the fucking back of the envelope for like what it would take to make this program and look anything like what was promised in natural language. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And and that's something that like, again, the. Uh, it's not it's not just the media's fault. It's the fact that like we have an entire system of institutions that allows the top line to actually be a political object in in a way that nothing else can be in the way that like the actual like context of like making the policy could be. Right. I think that's such a good point, Phil. And to be honest, like all I can think about is just how in my lifetime, how like sort of slow the policy machine has become. And I feel like for me, the best example of that is always looking at how many pieces of legislation were like passed to address disability up until the ADA, right? Where you had like, you know, over 60 individual bills passed at a federal level. And mm-hmm. after the ADA is passed, like the policy la- like, like landscape, nothing. yeah, yeah, nothing. The policy landscape completely shifts, right? And you have priorities totally change. And, you know, I, I think one thing that that we've seen, right, is this kind of decision about about spending that has no relationship to like, what does it cost to run the program? Like, how do we actually run the program and deliver the things that we've promised? Is this targeting what we want it to target? Right. Like, I have not heard anyone like talk about the child tax credit as like, is this intervention going to work or like, what is this going to do for families in over a month now? It's only been like the the issues of like, how long is it going to be and how generous is it going to be? And is it going to be means tested? And are there going to be work requirements? And it like it, when we shift things into this like level where everything's like all purely theoretical and, and, and all equal sort of on the table. And it's only just an issue of like, how much do we want to decide to put where it really hides the fact that like, there are people that need to run these programs and administer them. There are people that need to figure out like how these regulations are going to even work. And then they're going to have to be the people staffing, doing the back end of like administering the program. Right. Like and if you've ever been to a Medicaid office, you know exactly what it's like when like a program is stood up and then not funded properly because you're there all fucking day. And like all of these these conversations that we keep having that are like so moralistic about like what we can afford to spend on helping people survive, just they never once dip down to the level where you get anywhere close to like the material impact it has on someone's life. I mean, I think a really good example of that and what this kind of uh, thinking um, does, because again, you know, I think as a component of your point, I guess, is that it is that basically, you know, as we talk about all the time, it's very dumb to do sort of policy making as this, like, let's move the sliders a little bit this way or a little bit that way, right. as opposed to, okay, what's the, what is the goal that we're trying to achieve? Let's try Like, let's try to actually do that. Um, that's why, you know, we advocate for something like Medicare for all, for example, as like a, well, if you really want to reduce 
all of these uh, uh, numerous amounts of like inequality. Um, or if you really want to, you know, make it so that you have actual universal quote unquote access to uh, healthcare, right? Right. Then like doing Medicare for all is like basically the way to do that. Um, my point being though, that I think this is all well illustrated in the fact that like, now that things have very publicly become like, okay, here's, we have this, uh, we have this 1.7 to $1.9 trillion box to play in. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. like, so let's try and figure out how we can like Tetris as much shit into this box as possible. This has become kind of like the way it appears to be uh, being sort of negotiated. I mean, uh, as an example of that, for, I guess, quote unquote, whatever the healthcare part of this would become mm-hmm. now, right? The conversation, as you kind of alluded to uh, before, be but to be like a little bit more explicit about it, like on healthcare for the reconciliation bill, the idea is now basically that you can only kind of have one of these three possible things that were all sort of floated, initially floated as being you know, definitively part of it. And this is not even to count in like long-term care, which we're not, which I'm not even talking about here, but like in terms of sort of like the, um, traditionally understood healthcare, um, even though long-term care should be part of healthcare or whatever, in terms of the healthcare discussion, it's, uh, you can pick one of the following, but not, not more than one. It is either one expand Medicare, uh, to include vision and dental without cost sharing, which is the Sanders proposal and and everything and, and what they're really fighting for. Not just Sanders, obviously, but he's most associated with it. Uh, I think in, in the media right now, um, you have two, which is, uh, expand ACA subsidies, which Pelosi is most behind. Um, mm-hmm. and you have three, do the thing that we talked about months ago when it was first floated, which is create a second version of Medicaid at the federal level in order to basically uh, complete ACA Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. in states that have not expanded it, which if uh, this is kind of a blast from the past for us almost. I mean, it's not that long ago at this point, but I just want to call out. We talked about this plan at length in the July 15th episode, A New Spirit of Austerity. So if you want to hear us like our full thoughts on on that proposal, that's where to find that. But, you know, these are these are the three things that are like left to be decided between basically. Right. And I feel and and the first of all, the fact that like it's decide between these things is just like laughable. Mm -hmm. But second, it's, I think it's so, it's just such a sorry state of affairs that even just these three things, any, any single one of them is just so any single one of them, if implemented alone is just such like a tiny bandaid. Well, and also, okay, let's break this down for a second. Three mostly different populations. There is some overlap between the Medicare population and the Medicaid population for people who are on SSI or for low income seniors. Right. But largely, these are three different populations. Even the uh, the Medicaid and the Medicare parts, though, do not overlap in terms of services and coverage. Right. So like an expansion of Medicaid coverage and like expanding Medicare to include vision and dental would be great because that would mean that people on Medicare and Medicaid might have some sort of robust ish gesture towards like comprehensive healthcare coverage, not just medical coverage, right? Which you get a little bit through Medicaid and then you would theoretically have like a secondary payer then through Medicare. But like, no, it's an either or. Are we going to like expand Medicaid or are we going to like do the dental and vision, right? And for Medicare. And those are like completely different 
policy goals and completely different programs and completely different populations and completely different points of need, right? And and the fact that like these things are considered to be trade-offs for each other, right? Just as just on principle, I think shows you one of the ways that we have completely fucked up with the way that we talk about healthcare reform, right? That's that's right. And and like, can we talk about Medicare Advantage for a second? I was yeah. really Hell surprised yeah. to see what was like happening here. Yeah, I think Medicare, the Medicare Advantage stuff is a pretty interesting uh, part, like component of this story. And one that I think is very undercovered in terms of the both the potential impact, but also just how interesting of a wrinkle this is to, into this story, basically, because. So one thing that has been happening, this this has been uh, a consideration for a while, but I guess it's only been, I think now that they have uh, sort of agreed to this much lower figure, um, they're actively trying to, you know, Democrats are actively trying basically to find uh, more points to squeeze money out, right? right? I mean, we talked about this before, like how the drug pricing proposal uh, while billed as like, we're going to, we're going to finally solve, uh, you know, the problem of high drug prices, which like the, pr- the proposal that they're suggesting would maybe do like uh, by, by degrees, but absolutely would not like, would not fully just succeed in reducing drug prices. It would just like tamp down things like a, a little bit, which is better than nothing, but still, you know, um, similar to that and how, despite how it was sold in, in that way, so much of the drug pricing proposal in HR three was like used as, Oh, this is where some of our money is going to come from for this reconciliation bill. Like our expected savings from the drug pricing proposal is going to then uh, be like money that we use to finance these programs. And in a similar fashion now, Democrats are doing something surprisingly cool, which is uh, considering finally fucking making spending cuts to Medicare Advantage, Mm -hmm. um, which unfortunately, as just to I think just to lay this out, because a lot of people don't, you know, we talk about Medicare Advantage all the time, but I think a lot of people don't know really what it is. Medicare Advantage is like the privatized arm of Medicare, basically. Medicare Advantage plans are Medicare plans that are administered by um, insurance companies that are, you know, again, the same companies that um, administer like employer based plans that do uh, ACA plans and, and stuff like that. You know, the big health insurance companies, a lot of them are active in this privatized Medicare market. Um, it may come as like little surprise that there's a lot of profit to be made there. In fact, I think it's like one of the main growth industries for the mm-hmm. insurance industry right now. It is basically their Medicare plans that are privatized that are allowed basically to uh, do things like add additional things, additional points of coverage that like Medicare, traditional Medicare is not, uh, et, et cetera. And, and they're also very they're The other thing to know about Medicare Advantage plans is basically they're uh, pretty universally loathed. Like they're very bad. They're, you know, pretty typical statistics for them, despite the fact that um, so many people are on them, is that uh, once people who are enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan, this privatized Medicare option, uh, that basically like once someone who is on a Medicare Advantage plan actually gets sick or actually really needs to use their insurance, often they basically switch back to traditional Medicare Mm -hmm. at that point because so much stuff is not covered because it's you know it's run by an insurance you know it's run by an insurance company they cut the whole thing is like cutting corners and making sure they can cover as little as possible and or making you like on the hook for as much of um payment for your care as possible all that stuff so basically though to just um now that that is set up essentially the a proposal on the table now is essentially that like 
one thing that could make it into this reconciliation bill package is making cuts to Medicare Advantage, um, I guess, like payments. Reimbursements. Reimbursements. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, of course, like the industry is uh, is selling with quite a lot of uh, lobbying effort as like they're going to make cuts to Medicare or whatever, mm-hmm. or they're going to take away, uh, you know, seniors the coverage that seniors love right exactly and it's i mean this is really interesting to me because it's very easy because so few people really know what medicare advantage is i think it's probably very easy to politically whip up fervor over that over the idea that like oh they're making cuts to medicare Mm -hmm. or whatever where like the thing that they're cutting is not sacrosanct in fact like i would be thrilled if Medicare Advantage were fucking abolished in this reconciliation package, you know right. what I mean? Especially because I think that would lay, like one of the things that Medicare Advantage does, I think fundamentally, because it's allowed to cover a bunch of things that traditional Medicare is not, is it sort of allows for a certain subset of the population, especially those who can like pay for Medicare Advantage premiums, for example, or those who are like, you know, duped into it or whatever to sort of believe that Medicare covers more things than it does. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and it's like the whole history of like how Medicare Advantage even like ended up here has always been a sort of story about private insurance trying to like hold on to these alternative revenue streams. Um, so you have like these huge companies like Humana and United. Like I think it, I think it's like you know, really exploded, obviously, since like 2003. But, you know, it's been a a pretty large share of the market to offer supplemental coverage since the passage of the Balanced Budget Act in 1997. Like private insurance companies have gotten into supplementing Medicare coverage, which is like legally limited and legally not allowed to cover certain things like reproductive care, certain types of reproductive care, like Medicare does not cover certain types of um, care, like vision and dental, right? Like Medicare legally cannot cover. And these are things that were put into, um, you know, the structuring and passage of Medicare, you know, as a result of lobbying by various industries who wanted to, quote unquote, protect their autonomy, right? And maintain some control over setting the market price for their industry, right? So in, in 1997, this law passes that allows Medicare beneficiaries to get the It allows the option to receive your Medicare benefits administered by a private plan. And there's this thing called Medicare Plus Choice that starts, right? And basically, Medicare Plus Choice is fucking awful and terrible and can be like month to month. And it restricted your emergency care to like only certain locations. And it was really terrible. And then when you have like the Modernization Act passed in 2003 that that Bush passed that opens Medicare prescription drug coverage with Part D plans into the market, right? And creates this additional revenue stream for the same private insurance companies to administer another component, but not just administer... so nice, we did it twice. (laughs) Right, not just administer part of it, right? But like when the Part D uh, plan was initiated and structured, private insurance plans were given the entire market, 
right? The entire monopoly on who could provide the coverage with the government opting to not create like a traditional Medicare version of Part D coverage, right? Like you have to go through a private company for this. And so when that passed, right, there was an overlap between the Medicare Plus choice plans, the supplemental plans, which people call Part C, and the Part D plans. There was some like duplicate coverage. So that 2003 law like changed um, the Medicare choice plans and they transformed into Medicare Advantage and they got fucking worse, right? So in 2003, the law changed that used to just um, allow these plans to limit like emergency coverage to one regional area, right? So it's like, let's say you have a plan in Denver, you can only go to like the emergency room in Denver or something, right? And that was kind of the way these like supplemental plans worked. So it meant seniors couldn't travel and stuff like that without like losing access to their Medicare if they cross state lines or something like that. But that was just emergency care. In 2003, well, Medicare Advantage becomes, you know, the new Medicare Plus choice. And they say, oh, it's not just emergency care that you can limit regionally. You can do all of it. You can limit all care regionally. And like that tips off this acceleration within that sector of the market where what like the strategy is like called is like cherry picking and lemon dropping where what they're doing is they pick these sort of policies and they they target seniors who seem healthy, right? And they try and get people that are new to Medicare and get them to sign up for these comprehensive plans. And then the moment these patients get sick, right? Or they need any actual Medicare. They realize what the plan actually covers. Which is fucking nothing right and then when they have actual bills to to like deal with right patients are and and recipients rather benefit recipients are are forced to drop off of the private medicare plans right and on to like traditional medicare part a and b in order to like just you know not go fucking bankrupt or actually get access to a doctor when they become medically complex so like you have this history right of this sort of uh, parasitic like yeah that was the word i was going to use you <laughs> have this basically you invite this hugely uh parasitic element of like capital with and then you bring it inside the state and you give it this like power right. over it's not just like power that comes from capital's like ability to withdraw its investment it's power that comes from now you are staking all of these beneficiary like lives uh, on the on on the, these like profit making entities, and then what happens is anytime you try to say, oh yeah, actually this is a terrible arrangement, we shouldn't do this, and you don't have something on the table that's like Medicare for all, that's like, oh yeah, by the way, yeah, we're gonna be more universalizing. The very easy thing these companies can do is come back and say, uh, yeah, they they want to cut our profits. That means they're <laughs> gonna cut your benefits. Um, right. So it's this incredible. It's not quite like classic like structural power. But it, it it's like it's actually in a way worse uh, <laughs> because it's power that the state itself is like very instrumental in giving these firms. It's is it's, it's like actually interesting to me. Like I think the people who are not usually on the side of like Medicare for all are also like yeah Medicare advantages if fucking like horrible arrangement but then my point is like how are you going to get out of that politically if you don't have something more on the table you can't just like fix this one thing right well and then just i I think it's important too to to note scale here which is that medicare advantage now accounts for something like 42 percent 
of Medicare mm-hmm. plans. So like 42% of people who are on Medicare are on or enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan specifically. So and which has been rising uh, over the years. I mean, we've actually so, if, you know, especially if you're a newer listener, like we've talked about this a lot um, off and on. And one of the things that we talked about during the Trump administration often was like the the head of Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Seema Verma, and like the fact that they had pushed so much resource and even like uh, internal Medicare communication towards like we're going to be actively promoting Medicare Advantage plans. Mm-hmm. Um, this is whatever. This is something we've been talking about a long time. But basically, like, there's a recent uh, piece in Politico about Medicare Advantage and the the proposal floated um, among Democrats about this reconciliation bill and the idea of making cuts to it. They quote one unnamed uh, quote unquote industry insider on the negotiations saying it'll be insurance plans jobs to make it as toxic as possible. We know members are already telling leadership, uh, Democratic members um, of of, uh, the House and Senate that we know members are already telling leadership we can't take attack ads saying we're cutting Medicare as in we can't like withstand attack ads saying that they would be cutting Medicare Uh, quote. They know the public isn't going to distinguish between the private and public pieces of it. And I think and this is what this is what I mean. Like, I think that that is absolutely true. Like being able to understand the differences between this like privatized, horrible version of uh, Medicare and the, you know, admittedly shitty needs to be considerably expanded needs a lot more than it currently has, you know, traditional Medicare. But then you get these situations where like, again, you know, this is not only like kind of the one still uh, remaining like growth sector for the insurance industry, like for the health insurance industry. This is also something where like, you know, as we've talked about before, it's not simply that these companies have sway just because they're like lobbying or whatever. These companies also have sway because like they maybe are. a major employer in someone's district like here's from the same report here's a a quote from Mm -hmm. the uh house budget chair john yarmouth quote it's reasonable to look at the potential savings there savings as in like from cutting medicare advantage quote because it's proven to be highly profitable maybe more profitable than it should be as in medicare advantage is maybe more profitable than it should be uh, quote, I can only get in trouble for saying that, though, because Humana is based in my hometown and that's 65 percent of their business. Right. And the, the thing is that like the way that Medicare Advantage was restructured, right, it became incredibly favorable, but it also was restructured with this really, really generous, very characteristic of like Bush vibes, right? Very generous reimbursement structure. And one of the one of the issues that's actually um, been debated, but not really been discussed a lot in the media when it comes to the expansion of um, like dental and vision in Medicare is that Medicare Advantage providers have been have been lobbying that if those things are added to traditional Medicare, that the value of like what Medicare plans provide needs to be reassessed um, because the payment structure for Medicare Advantage is like tied to actually what the value of traditional AB Medicare is from the government. So basically, like as the value of traditional Medicare would go up, like what these companies are saying is like, well, you know, you're you're stepping on our toes because we had this agreement that like 
you know, the government program would not get into these areas that are prohibited, right? And that those were areas that were essentially reserved for the private market. And if you're going to open that up and take that away, take that sort of exclusivity and that monopoly away from us in this population, then you owe it to the industry to like readjust the numbers up, right? Which would then result in even higher payments to these companies, which it's it's worth noting, like, are notorious for spending a lot of money on advertising and spending a lot of money on like automated risk assessment programs and stuff. Actually, like the stuff that we talked about with Abby in the episode on Tuesday, where you have these algorithms that try and look at patients and assign a risk score to them, right? And so these companies spend a lot of money on that and very little money on actually paying for people's medical care. Like there are rules about how much money they're supposed to proportionally spend on people's medical care versus like the administration of the plan and advertising. But when they violate those rules, there's no one to enforce it. Right. So it's like been this perpetual problem of of sort of them saying like, you know, United and Humana and, and Aetna and CVS and all these companies that are involved in these sort of privately administered public plans feel like a great deal of entitlement over this market. Right. And they have lobbied successfully for a long time to try and sort of stay under the radar. So I would I think for the most part. They've survived because most people don't even really understand that they aren't government plans and that they are different, right? right? Like there's this huge ambiguity that's very intentional that that even in some of the coverage over these debates and negotiations about Medicare Advantage plans lobbying um, over the the decisions about spending that we're seeing, you know, they're seeing it mentioned like the plans are a little worried that getting involved in lobbying right now might draw too much attention to themselves. That's how like bullshit these plans are. They're like absolute trash. And if they draw too much attention to themselves, they like people are, might realize guys, that that's right. actually that the, they're being sold a really bad <laughs> bill of goods and le- and depart them, which is which is a very interesting place. It's like it, it, to me, it's like a sign like. Even Democrats who are maybe skittish about this, like, should say, bring it on. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is like people suddenly realize how bad these plans uh, are. I think that that's, um, you know, don't don't assume that their messaging is necessarily going to be effective. Uh, And and like, again, call them on their bullshit here a little bit um, because they're usually pretty good doing it. But I mean, I think the bigger thing. For me, though, is you're never going to get rid of this problem as long as you leave Medicare Advantage in place. You right. leave it in place. These firms always exist. If they exist, they're they're going to fight you tooth and nail on everything. Like this is you. The only way to get rid of the parasite is to eradicate it. Yeah. Like full stop. You have to go all the way. You have to cut them out of politics. Period. Yeah. And make it impossible for them to participate in politics again in the same way. You have to completely scramble and reconfigure what that sector looks like. And until you do that, reformism is going to lead you right back into the same place you've always been. Right. Because even, frankly, even stripping out Medicare Advantage, while, as as I mentioned just earlier, like would absolutely welcome abolishing Medicare Advantage like today. Right. Like even doing that, it's like these, the, you know, the companies that run these plans, they're still like active, like even with, even just with like the private insurance market, even if, even if Medicare Advantage were stripped from them, yes, that would be a huge 
loss in their revenue or whatever. But if they're allowed to continue to exist, this is why we say like, you know, insurance companies have like no place in society because mm-hmm. like as long as insurance companies are, along, are allowed to exist, even if you took Medicare Advantage away tomorrow, they would be, you know, lobbying that same day or days before it was taken fucking away to reinstate it. Right. Right. Or to do something even worse. Right. So. And, and you know, it's like these private insurance companies have co- literally colonized like every single public insurance option from Medicaid to federal prescription drug coverage, right? Which is why it's like so crucially important when you're talking about Medicare for all to be thinking about it in a framework that like must eliminate private insurance and not reproduce these mistakes that we're seeing play out, like where you're like, oh, well, we'll cut out this, um, you know, area and we'll let private insurance hold on to that. No. And and we do need to do... uh and I think we will in the next few months probably do a whole episode on the history of Medicare Advantage, which I think this is a little glimmer of it, but like it's a, it's a, you know, mark of the beast sort of situation, but not <laughs> yeah. in a cool way. So we got to come back to it. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I think we should move on um, to talking about the plans to start rolling out vaccination in children and the discourse that's popping up about what exactly this is going to pretend in terms of bringing about once again the new normal post-COVID, in the midst of COVID, you know, no mask reality that everyone seems to be really in a rush to try and get to. So this week, there's been a lot of news that's come out with updates about what is going on with vaccine emergency uh, use authorization. So you have uh, the announcement that there's going to be um, boosters now for Johnson and Johnson. You have the announcement that they're going to do boosters for the um, Moderna vaccine. And then you also have the announcement that they're going to expand vaccination to the age group of uh, children aged five to 11. And um, so basically exactly like what was happening around the time that the conversation about the booster approval was going on um, happened again, where the White House sort of announced its plan for how it was going to distribute and roll these things out before the CDC and FDA had actually officially ruled on whether or not these things were going to get the emergency use authorization. Um, But nevertheless, these like distribution plans have already, you know, been announced and the conversation starts to begin, of course, like after this happens every time with like, okay, so this is happening now for sure. And this is what the world is going to look like now after this happens. And, And you know what I mean? It's a sort of speculative moment of everybody like, running with the announcement and not waiting to see even what's going to happen. I mean, this this is all to say, like, you know, I mean, the reason to talk about this basically is what you're starting to see, what you've kind of immediately started to see as soon as it became very evident that the vaccination rollout was going to start happening among kids five to 11, finally, which is to say that, you know, I think one of the things like, for for instance, like, I think one of the things holding back the or allowing people to be critical sort of of the like pandemic of the unvaccinated line, for example, for a while was the fact that like, you know, a lot of parents immediately would like react to that and be like, well, my kid's not vaccinated. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, it's not approved for them. Then of course, like anyone 12 and up was then approved for the vaccine. It slowly got, you know, that's, so that's slowly like worn uh, away or whatever. But I think the most indicative thing of, and this just like gives me, uh, I was telling B like, this just makes me feel like I'm like, I can see 
like I can see from like a far distance and I can see like, you know, one car like moving into like slowly drifting into oncoming traffic or something <laughs> yeah, right. about this is like so there's this there was this jg allen op-ed in the washington post <laughs> this week uh which was just really tragic um which was called uh opinion schools should do away with mask mandates by the end of the year and i want to talk about what the argument is here but i just want to say really quickly Again, the reason to talk about this wasted uh, no time. (laughs) The reason to talk about this in the context of like uh, the Biden administration announcing the rollout of uh, vaccines for ages five to eleven to be to begin shortly is that I think one this take is very indicative for how immediately people are going to take like take this news that like Mm -hmm. more children will be will have been vaccinated, and two. I personally have this on my Biden administration bingo card for one of those things that ends up be, be like going from the pages of some tawdry fucking op-ed to public policy. Right. Like the one in 5,000 breakthrough infection line that went from an op-ed to official Biden talking point in like less than a week. We keep seeing these things be kind of like sucked up from the pages of like preemptive <laughs> opinion pieces and to official policy. And I think it's worrying to see especially especially, you know, one of the one of the ways that J.J. Allen frames his argument in this piece is this kind of idea of needing to incentivize quick uptake of the vaccine too. like he's like, you know, we really don't need vaccine mandates to to be a precondition to lifting um, mask mandates in schools that just having the sort of vaccine out there that people will be incentivized that they will want to be able to send their kids to school. And also, if we, you know, lift mask mandates, then they will have have you know real incentive to get their kids God. vaccinated because okay, let's say he's is, like let's list let's lift masking in december uh if the vaccine's rolling out mid-november then everybody will be incentivized to quickly vaccinate their kids because the spread of the disease <laughs> note note that what is unsaid there is that the spread of the disease is the is the is that the carrot or the stick <laughs> maybe it's neither maybe it's a maybe stick it's that looks like a carrot that's actually a gun um you know <laughs> Well, let's. Uh, so before we get too ahead of ourselves, let me just uh, let me walk through a couple of components of uh, of this argument here. There's only, I mean, most of this is just kind of dithering, um, but there are a couple of like key things here, and I do think this is just really important to, like, you know, like any good uh, whack a mole game or whatever. Just want to be real quick on the draw with this one um, because this to me is a very dangerous argument that I, based on all the other bullshit that we see with COVID and kids and what we're already doing in terms of like the horrible public policies and public health, uh, non use of like public health interventions, basically that's happening around the country, uh, in terms of like, uh, COVID and kids and like, you know, forcing people back into like unsafe classrooms, et cetera. Like just want to, just want to like get really ahead on this one. So quote, it's time to set firm dates for ending masking in schools. (laughs) The risk of COVID-19 to kids is already very low. Again, see our episode on from Tuesday with Abby Cardis about that and our other episodes. <laughs> Many about that. other, yeah. Um, and with the expected arrival of vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds in early November, schools should be able to lift their mask mandates by the end of the year at the latest. Okay. Right now, schools have to craft policies based on acceptable risks. Now that children will soon have access to vaccines, all parents will have the tools to send their kid to school with the assurance that they will be safe. 
even without masks. He goes on to cite some, you know, data about he's just like proving drumbeat how how rare it is in kids. The CDC is meeting on November 2nd and 3rd to make the final recommendation on vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds. Health officials should be preparing now to administer these vaccines on the first day they're allowed, with full-dose protection of the two-dose regimen kicking in one month after the second shot and strong protection one month after that. That would mean children who receive their shot immediately would be vaccinated around the third week of December. In other words, there should be no mask mandates for kids in schools in the new year (laughs) or even earlier. If your kid does not get vaccinated immediately, too fucking bad. (laughs) Why do we need such a quick timeline? Because if we don't set hard deadlines, it's easy to see how schools could sleepwalk into indefinite masking for kids for at least this entire school year. Also, which would harm no one. (laughs) But like the the citation there, by the way, is to himself. um, Yes. And an earlier op-ed in which he also just asserted the same thing without yeah <laughs> any evidence but yeah go on i mean the thing is i guess my big thing about this is like stop me if you've heard this one before like uh okay vaccine rollout um begins crests up you theoretically have you know a larger you have you know a large pool of population becoming vaccinated um great time to take mask mandates away Right. Doesn't that remind really me at all of the spring. June. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That super worked. I mean, this, 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 this is, I guess, what's driving me totally mad about this whole fucking thing is that, like, I feel like we're caught in this repeating pattern where we have, you know, for a long time, like, as, or as, like, what was referred to as, like, the Delta surge or whatever, you know, picked up. I think a lot of um, these pundits, even people like JG Allen or whatever, or like Iglesias or something, like, mm-hmm. moderated their tone and they were like, oh, well, you know, it's getting worse. So I'm not going to say, like, how do we, like, you know, when's the time that we can officially call it? When can we, like, blow the whistle on this and say, like, well, that's it, you know, end of, end of COVID, we can kind of go back to our normal lives or whatever. Like, the moment, like, the moment, that like the aggregate number of cases nationwide starts to reduce a little bit it is immediately back to this incessant drumbeat of like okay when the fuck can i live again without seeing a single fucking mask in my life like how soon can we get back to that i mean as i mentioned iglesias actually like he had a post um just this week that was like uh, if it doesn't make if it doesn't make sense in terms of a forever uh, like a, a forever policy, like if it doesn't make sense to wear masks in this context forever, we should just stop doing it now. You know, might as well stop doing it now. No, never mind the fact that everyone premising all of these arguments on the idea that like, again, like, quote unquote, the Delta surge is waning or something like that is not thinking about, oh, I don't know, the last several fucking times that we've been here or the fact that like thanksgiving is fucking approaching you right. know what i mean right like, what do you think is gonna happen right no and what also the, what exactly do you think is gonna happen this fall I mean, also like <laughs> you don't even have to wonder what what is going to happen please do come to uh waukesha county uh your suburb of uh, milwaukee where there is not a mass mandate in schools and look at their case counts and look at the fact that you've had at least one student die as a, you know, from COVID as a consequence of this. I mean, yeah, but Phil, that was probably a a pre-sick death. You know, that was probably an immune compromised Mm -hmm. child or a a child that is otherwise uh, busted or a lemon. So that doesn't count. That child had the same thing that Colin Powell had. Right. Exactly. 
that child that child looked at someone with cancer three years ago so it means that they you know the death was pulled from the future so yeah. no, but count. my but i and think that's what these know, people think though but but also like this is the, the i think the more frightening thing is it's not necessarily like these op-ed writers alone that are kind of animating this it's it's the fact that you know you now have this like I think I don't know, it's hard to say unprecedented, but a like a very large number of not only like contested school board seats now, but also like recall elections. Wisconsin now is like the the second in the country for the number of like school board recall uh, elections that are com- that are like mainly over the mask um, yeah. issue. And the other sort of dynamic is that in in some places like the mask issue, vaccination issue, it like parents are. Uh, in some cases, like using their leverage to like pull their kids out of school. And that means the school gets essentially it's like the de facto like defunding uh, of the school. So it's like the, and and what happens when you have these public health people sort of articulating this, it's it it and, you know, I guess, you know, sorry, healthy buildings, people, um, <laughs> you know, an, animating this. Um, it really does like underwrite this idea that like, no, it's actually the smart, sensible thing. You know, especially in in the face of these like pressures to go more lax on on mandates and like and again, you know, why, why take my word for it? Like you can like look at places that don't have them and and see what the what the difference is, right? Right, but right. this is also I think why the the sort of like social reproductive power of not not this you know stupid piece in particular, but like the idea like them. oh the drumbeat yeah. of now it's time to end you know mass mandates in general for for kids or whatever and that getting like just because i think as we saw but i think my point is that for instance like as we saw before in june uh which was preceded by if you recall the discourse in may among a bunch of like random liberals um think of like even i think um like the new republic ran like a fucking horrible opinion piece that was like you know we need to we should drop all the all all the masking outdoors because it's just performative theater and the and the conservatives are right that we're just being theatrical with our use of uh masks outdoors during COVID or whatever and it's like you know that stuff directly with like the moment that uh you know vaccine uptake hits like a certain percentage is like the liberal salve for okay now it's okay to basically do the the thing that we've been like not we but like that you know the same people have right. been openly mocking republicans for or whatever right. like that they just like fucking again you know that they they just like go wild for like okay like now it's time like now we can finally like throw away the mask or whatever you know right. what i mean and it's just a recipe for fucking disaster well and there needs obviously like this is a dialectic it is right ironically like yeah. this is a dialectic right you know? no and a violent a very violent one too that's been re like it I think it's interesting because I think we're seeing uh, an old pattern and a new pattern, right? The, the old pattern is like when cases, when lines start to go down on case numbers, right? Regardless of what line is doing on death numbers, of course, <laughs> because we have had over a thousand deaths for over 60 days in a row. I think we on day of recording, we are due to hit day 63 in a row of over a thousand deaths a day, according to the New York Times. But we are at a case level as low as we were 
in July. And that should somehow be a celebration, despite the fact that, you know, in July, that was kind of the beginning of things looking like a bit of a fucking disaster, right? Like that's being celebrated as like a downturn in cases, right? So since that overall number is down, you have like the green light, like the on-air light goes on and everybody's like, okay, time to run with it. Time to run with like, it. time's up, it's time to go back to normal. And I think like, you know, one of the things that is new though that's showing up is this idea that, well, you know, like you could just put the mask in the drawer, and take it out again, which J.G. Allen literally says himself. Or here's another example I'm going to read you from Matt Iglesias' piece. When do we wind down the COVID theater on slow boring? Oh, yeah, this is the one I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. and he says... um. Uh, In general, a good way to think about which COVID precautions make sense right now is to think about which COVID precautions make sense forever. No. Mm. Being more diligent about our hand washing, for example, is just a good idea. If everyone who lived through the pandemic develops a lifelong habit of being more (laughs) conscientious about hand hygiene, that's a good thing. I'm sorry. Let me hold on. I, I'm just stuck on the first. I'm silent sentence. now, not I because just... I have nothing to say, but because my brain is. I'm really having a hard time with this. This is hard. <laughs> Why is? <laughs> can I? Okay. Can I just make an analogy though? This is a little bit like Please saying make any analogy I, <laughs> that makes sense. Unlike this first, this first comment, the uh, in general a good way to quote in general a good way to think about which COVID precautions make sense right now is to think about which COVID precautions make sense forever. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> this is like saying, you know, New Orleans doesn't need the levy all the time. Do they really need the levy? What if we just levy? put it up when, you know, it's like storm season? What if we just put it up during no. hurricane season? No, what it's not. What if we just get plywood from Home Depot and we ship plywood to New Orleans so they can use it when they need it? You right. know, no, and like, then they can put it away when they don't. But I, but I don't So like the, the argument that that you know, people who are more precautionary are essentially like the, 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 the notion that they're arguing for permanent masking is so <laughs> absurd. Like there yeah. is such a thing that like for that, for what he's saying to be true, you have to like abandon the understanding of like what a viral diseases what like spread looks like yeah. what like for 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 that claim is like oh what what these people want is just like masking forever that's not true right and i don't think anyone's saying that and 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 so the i like but for him it's like you know uh rather than using like public health data to like inform that we're just going to use what we've used the entire time which is like an arbitrary cutoff which which somebody who has a substack should tell us what that is. That's good. I'm well, glad that I'm glad that I now know how to think about a fucking <laughs> pandemic. Thank you. Well, I think this is what I mean though about this being sort of like an evolution, like a new version of the argument. Like it's like, you know, the next alien movie or whatever. It's now the like human alien hybrid. Um, because he he pairs this like ridiculous idea of the um, you know, the only COVID precautions that make sense are the ones that make sense forever with this kind of tacit acknowledgement of the role that like selective masking could uh, have if it was uptaken in certain like social circumstances in general, where he says, um, you know, this is after the hand washing portion that I was reading, which is just such a rhetorical like 
whatever. But he goes, um, by the same token, I wouldn't be surprised if some people became habitual mask wearers in airports or when riding the bus. I think I might be a person like that. Wearing a mask on the bus is not especially burdensome and getting respiratory infections is annoying. Annoying. And obviously. But this is what I mean. This is like J.G. Allen's like you could just put the mask back in the drawer and take it out when you need it. And he goes, uh, Iglesias continues, and obviously adding one more vaccine to the list of required vaccines is a change we could make permanently. Moderna is working on a combination flu COVID vaccine that people could take annually I think that works as a permanent change, which makes zero sense to me. And then he goes, but I don't think asking college students to wear masks in dorms or asking white collar workers to wear masks in offices makes sense as a forever policy. And if it doesn't make sense as a forever policy, it doesn't really make sense as a right now policy Uh, either, unless you're specifically talking about kids under 12 who should be vaccine eligible within a few weeks. Okay, so. This is so I don't know how he backed himself into like what like acid he took. Um what what people told him was acid. I mean, this is just like such a strange rhetorical setup. Like if it if it doesn't make sense as a forever policy, it doesn't make sense now. Noting that there like is no point in the like I guess there's one two two ways to think about like what might have what might animate an argument like this. One is you stipulate the idea that like a very large level of COVID will always be with us apparently because right now the number of cases in the United States is what like higher than it was in like the first few two, at least the first two waves yeah. of, uh, of the yeah. pandemic right like it's, it's not even and, and deaths are too right we um, are at uh, the same level that we were at um, around July 29th which is like around 80,000 cases a day July 29th which year 2021 yeah so I mean yeah. like um, so there's, so like the, you, the, the stipulation is that, okay, I guess forever we're going to have this incredibly high level of spread of an infectious disease, which kills a lot of people every day. And that's fine. If so, say that and say that that is tolerable, like defend your fucking choice, right. defend your policy choice. Yeah. But he doesn't want to do that. Um, because it's, it, you know, that is indefensible, I think. Um, right. so the, the other potential like option is that like, you just think that there is no, I mean, what you just think that there is no more pandemic or that people are arguing that like, yes, even past the point at which this thing is spreading at all, um, that we would want to have these. I mean, this is just, uh, yeah, this is very convoluted and wrong. And I'm not sure, like, it's sort of like making a concept album. Like I'm sure it sounds (laughs) good to you. I'm sure the idea that like, you know, a double, a double length, like concept album, like, that involves like a space opera of some kind that like, that sounds good to you, but like, it's just no, no producer in the world would, you know, recommend it. I feel like I'm being spoken to explicitly with our upcoming double length, uh, concept episode. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I think, you know, it's telling the way that he frames it. Iglesias frames it in a pro- promo tweet, um, promoting his article where he says, the question is what should normal be forever? Right. And I, that's really what's being negotiated now in a lot of people's minds. But with within that negotiation, you know, Phil, you're exactly right. And we talked about this with Abby on Tuesday. No one is willing to talk about 
what the acceptable normal level of COVID death should be. And I think that, you know, right now that's actually what the real like deep root of the conversation that we're having, like what this dialectic is, is like, is really about that. The only thing that's being agreed right now is that basically that is practically not worth talking about. Yeah. Actually the idea, actually I think what is practically being agreed is like that, specific thing is not not only off the table for you know open discussion but is not worth being discussed because basically um the other points of uh of conversation which are you know personal responsibility vaccination Mm -hmm. rate um when exactly can we get rid of mitigation measures etc are uh, taken as like the key component and basically, um, down to, I mean, I joked about Colin Powell earlier, but like down to when, you know, I don't know, like a fucking famous villain dies or whatever it becomes, uh, it becomes like, Oh, you know, well, yeah, he, he was vaccinated, but you know, he was one of those people whose death was pulled from the future. Uh, he had this like immunological condition and that like reduced his, you know, re- response to uh, the vaccine or whatever that made him like extra vulnerable. He's one of those vul- the vulnerable populations. But you know what? You're not. So it's fine. Right. I mean, no. if you listen to fucking like that's how like li- I, I, I swear to God, listen to like any NPR segment about yeah right his death and they'll be like yeah and he had cancer also he was older message. so keep that in mind yeah so the so the bottom line is yeah we don't even need to talk about what the excess death is and after after a certain point we will not talk about it turn the meat grinder back on forward progress anyway i think that's a good place to leave it for today yeah. um nice good, and cheery a good play, a good nice and cheery place to leave it contemplating what should be normal forever right the important questions about life if you'd like to uh hear us rant a little bit more on this topic again uh become a patron patreon.com slash death panel pod we had an awesome episode with abby cardis on monday where we talked about covid and schools and children and a lot more on the conversation of sort of what we aren't talking about when we're talking yeah. about the pandemic becoming um, endemic. Yeah, if, right? you, if you liked this, I think you'll in particular um, get a lot out of that conversation. That was really great. Yeah, and it was fun to see Abby or hear Abby. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, so patreon.com slash pod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends. You can post about your favorite episodes or you can follow us at deathpanel underscore And we will uh, see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
me. That's yeah, good. you're still looking uh, smooth and, and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Clean well, lines. I got in the uh, Baron Harkonnen juice bath and uh, <laughs> <laughs> built up again. I'm excited to talk about Gigi Allen. You know, <laughs> yeah. I was actually, I was not aware he was still alive. Um, but uh, got some bad news you know, for you, Phil. Yeah, <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, that so, infamous you know, funeral was a, a stunt. It was staged like the moon landing. <laughs> okay. All right. So when he said die when you die, he wasn't really, <laughs> he wasn't, he was not referring to himself. 